This is the Child Discipleship Podcast powered by Awana. I'm Ross. You know who you are. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. And thank you for watching. Y'all are in for a real treat today. I am joined by John Mark Comer. Uh, John Mark Comer uh, founded Practicing the Way, which aims to create resources for discipleship and formation in local churches in post-Christian context. He's also a pastor and a speaker and an author. Uh, John Mark Comer, welcome back to the podcast, sir. It's very good to be with you guys and happiness in my heart seeing you over Zoom. Yes. And uh, I'm also joined by Matt Markins. Matt is the president and CEO at Awana and Mike Handler, who is the chief innovation and communication officer at Awana. Matt and Mike, welcome back to the podcast, guys. Always good to be with you, Ross. Excellent. Now, um, I want to start, you know, for John Mark, to start with you, sir, practicing the way is a relatively new initiative from you, relatively new ministry. And it's something you've been a pastor now, you've started this organization. What are you hope? It's a ministry dedicated to discipleship. What are you hoping practicing the way can provide churches during this moment that we're in as a church? Well, you know, it's kind of hard to measure things at times, but from one measurement, practicing the way is only a few months old as an organization. By another measurement, it's six or seven years old because it started as a kind of five-year initiative at our church. The original nomenclature was Curriculum for Christ-likeness, which is based on the work of the philosopher Dallas Willard. He has kind of this magnum opus book from the late 90s called The Divine Conspiracy, where he lays out, you know, at the time it was radical. Now for, you know, it, it would be less radical now because he was reintroducing ancient Christian ideas that had been lost in Western evangelicalism, like the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom and discipleship to Jesus and spiritual formation and the Sermon on the Mount as an actual vision of how to be human under Jesus' rule. And uh, again, all basic Christianity stuff, but radical at the time if you are a kind of American evangelical. And at the end, when he kind of gets from the, the what and this incredible vision of the life that is possible in the kingdom to the how, he doesn't go into it. He just says what the church needs is a curriculum for Christ-likeness, mm -hmm. meaning we have, and this is very pertinent to the work you guys do, we have a curriculum for learning the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. We A lot of churches have some form of a curriculum for marriage or parenting or family stuff, but what we need is a curriculum as well to live the Sermon on the Mount. How do we become the kind of people who naturally love our enemies, who live without an anxious care, but have a deep trust in God, who do good things, but not for show or performative you know, spirituality and so on and so forth? How do we rid anger and contempt from our heart? How do we forgive those that have wronged us? How do we stay faithful to our wives and our husbands? So um, basically we set out to do his, his, his you know, recommendation to, to, construct a curriculum for Christ-likeness. So Practicing the Way was an attempt to kind of uh, redo kind of the discipleship models that I had grown up with, with an integrated approach to discipleship. And then we did that at Bridgetown for five years. And, you know, people are not widgets. So it's not like we cracked the formula and then we figured out, this is how you do discipleship and do these three <laughs> things and boom, you know, feed people into the assembly line and out will come people living on the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. If only it was that simple. Yeah. Um, of course, the human soul is so beautifully mysterious and complex and frustrating and uh, and and entrenched and enslaved and beautiful mm -hmm. at the same time. So it doesn't work that way, but it was utterly transformative on our church. I mean, just mm -hmm. utterly transformative. And through that process, you know, a lot of other churches began to use our resources, which weren't even designed for the church at large. They were designed just for Bridgetown Church in Portland and follow along with what we were doing and do it in their own context. 
I just, you know, have a driving life passion. I'm in my early forties now, but we started really, really young. So we've been at the church almost 20 years. And I just kind of felt like, you know, for the second half of my life, I wanted to give myself to discipleship and formation in the church, in Western church, which is increasingly the global church and specifically in post-Christian contexts. So that's the hope. The hope is that other churches around the world in their own culture, in their own way, in their own theological traditions, denominational cultures, that they would begin to go on a journey of reintegrating discipleship or formation, and I use those words interchangeably, into the heart of the church and adopting uh, not really new, more ancient models of discipleship that are more holistic, more body-based, more emotionally informed, that go beyond more church and attendance and Bible study, which are things I'm very much for. Um, but I think they're they're much more limited in their impact than people want to believe in evangelicalism and kind of reintegrate a more holistic approach of discipleship into the church and put it kind of take it from the margins if it's there at all and put it back to the center of what church is all about. So okay. let's talk more about that. So let's juxtapose, I'd like to juxtapose the work you've done over the, essentially the last decade and the work that Awan has done in the last decade. Mm -hmm. We've not, we've not collaborated at all, but I'd like to. Very describe, similar journeys. Uh, yeah. Describe for our listener. I'm going to describe for our listeners a little bit of what you've been doing, a little bit of what we've been doing. And then I'm going to ask you to kind of interact with it a little bit. So when we first started reading and, and hearing you in audio, talking about the three goals of discipleship of be with Jesus become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. First of all, we, are, we were like, our, our our minds were blown because it was just so similar to what, what we're doing. Uh, okay. So let me back up for, for our listeners. Uh, so about 2013, we started asking the question, what is it the church does that leads to lasting faith in kids? And are the broader church community, parents, coaches, mentors, teachers, uh, the local church, what mm -hmm. is it that we do with children that helps cultivate and form a lasting faith. So uh, over the course of that journey, it's nine research projects for us. Uh, we get letters from 134 countries where we have ministry presence, and we boiled it down to three primary factors. Plus, we took in the work of like Christian Smith and Fuller Youth Institute and Barna and others. Yes, yes. We, boil, we boiled it down to belong, believe, become. Belong is deeply scriptural ministry rooted in the gospel, rooted in the truth of God's word. Uh, no, excuse me. That's uh, belong. We're going to edit this, Ross. Mm -hmm. <laughs> belong is highly relational ministry led by yeah. loving caring adults believe is deeply script scriptural ministry rooted in the gospel and the truth of god's word and become is that experiential element how do i help kids experience the culture around me uh, uh, experience god's presence and live out my giftedness and so what we figured out and christian smith's work says it best that when all three are combined a child's likelihood and a student's likelihood of remaining in the faith beyond young adulthood is mm. much, much higher. So we're yes. trying to help the church, you know, ask, well, how is my ministry or is my ministry designed around those three, three areas? So as, as you hear that, I know your expertise is not necessarily the children's space, but I know you think a lot about your world and some of the similarities there. How would you, how would, how do you think about what you do as it relates to children um, in, in their faith formation? Hmm. I mean, I, I would, I think the the tables are in the wrong direction on that question. You know, <laughs> you are the people I would want to ask that question of, not myself. I'm just trying to parent my own kids and not screw them up too bad, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, similar to you, I would really want to adopt a more holistic approach to discipleship. 
and uh, maybe hol holistic is too west coast of a word. What I mean by that is a kind of a broader, deeper body-based, all of life-based approach to discipleship. So the, the the Western church and in particular evangelicalism, but but really this is true of, of the Western church as a whole. It's just more true of the Protestant stream than the Catholic stream. And basically saying out of the enlightenment, the thought process was you're basically a brain on legs, your body, you know, what's the Benjamin Franklin line, your body is just there to carry the brain around. And in that model of the human person, that's not a model of discipleship, that's an anthropology, that's a model of what does it mean to be a human being. Our entire Western world is based on that. For example, our education system. So, you know, the famous TED talk by Sir, what's his face, Kensington or whatever, who, you know, critiques the Western educational model as being basically an industrial assembly line and how it just does not work. That's all based on this same kind of model. You take people through an intellectual curriculum, step by step by step. You put the right information out. It's a it's a mechanistic or in our age, a computerized view of the human person. Put the right information into the brain and the right behavior will come out. And evangelicalism and the Protestant church has almost wholly adopted this mindset uh, if, and we've just used the Bible instead of secular neuroscience or whatever. If we get the right information or truth is the word that we would use into the brain, then out will come the right behavior, you know? And the crisis of discipleship that we're living through and have been living through for many, many decades in the Western church is proof that this view of the human person is deeply inadequate that we are, the mind is central and thinking God's thoughts after him and what Paul calls the renewal of the mind, which is different than just information in, it's actually rewiring your neural synapses to, to have the mind of Christ, to think Christianly or Christianly. But still, even that is not holistic enough to get into the deepest level of the human person. So I think where there's a lot of parallel between our work is rediscovering the importance of community, you know, the, the Barner research around um, you know, which I'm sure would go very well with Smith's work that you guys are riffing with about uh, that came out of millennial spirituality, the and what and his, you know, in particular, their popular level book, Faith for Exiles, their stuff on the number one common denominator between kids that retain their faith from childhood through adulthood and don't. The, the one thing in there that was totally non-intuitive to me that I never would have guessed in a million years was multi-generational friendships with yeah. older Christians. That to me was like, I never would have guessed that. I never would have intuited that. That has deeply affected how we parent and how we live as a family, very intentionally trying to integrate our kids into multi-generational community, not just church, but actual like community around a table. And that's where I think, you know, much of Western child and youth discipleship has siloed kids off. I think, you know, relearning the importance of community, which is your belonging, that's at the center of discipleship. And I think most modern attractional large churches really struggle to do that. Yep. And then on the other end of your sense of becoming, that's the work of formation. That's the deeper body-based, emotional family of origin work that goes beyond the exegesis of, you know, Ephesians chapter five into, all right, what happened, what needs to happen in our body in order for us to live this vision that we're reading on the pages of scripture that's been exegeted to us and explained to us that we desire to live, but the automatic responses of sin in our body are obstructing us from this way of life, you know? So I think there's a lot of parallels there. 
so what we, what we hear you say it is is uh, I mean obviously the, the Bible is critically important, it's foundational, but we also know enough. And forgive about- me if I'm just kind of working with that presupposition. Yeah, I'm yeah, like yeah. as orthodox as Bible based as yeah. as they come. It, it's for me. It's just we need to expand, not. Yeah, not set but aside. Even, even using the Bible, you know, in, in observing Jesus, we see Jesus kind of doing what you're saying. It's just it, it, he's looking at the whole person. It's about whole person formation and development. And, and so let's get real practical here, though. Uh, you know, practicingtheway.org is a beautiful resource for the church. I know you guys are making significant uh, investments in taking that uh, to to 2.0 oh, and 3.0. Thank you. But my, you know, my son is is ripping everything off of there to teach a life group. Right. Wonderful. So it's super helpful. Um, but uh, let's get real practical with you as a parent. Uh, as you think about the practices, what what practices are, are you seeing you and T do with your own kids? Like, what? how are you helping form their faith uh, at the stages they're at? You know, gosh, that's an open question for me because I'm a double-minded man, unstable in all my ways, as long as we're quoting scripture here. <laughs> On one hand... I think, you know, you can't enforce spiritual and devotional practices upon somebody or they become this, you know, uh, uh, this externalized Matthew chapter six in an unhealthy kind of way, performative or obligatory or duty based, you know, disciplines of Jesus. Spiritual disciplines have to be motivated by love and desire. They have to be motivated by, I desire to be with Jesus and to become like Jesus and do what he did. And if my, you know, 14 year old or my 17 year old, who's wonderful, their real desire is I desire to hang with my friends and play Xbox, you know, then it's like, what, at what level do you enforce? Right. And then on the other hand, where I'm a double minded man is all of the neuroscience I think aligns with scripture in its loving critique of the kind of Rousseauian, if we're going to do philosophy again, Western romantic idea that comes from the philosopher Rousseau and from the romantic movement, which is this kind of counterbalance to the enlightenment that basically in very crass, gross oversimplification terms has given most Western people the assumption or presupposition that we shouldn't do something if it doesn't feel emotionally authentic to us, Mm. which would translate to... I shouldn't make my 14 year old read his Bible in the morning if he doesn't emotionally feel authentic in his desire to read scripture. And basically both scripture and I think science would (laughs) would offer a very strong critique of that, because what that misses is that often what's authentic to us is let's just set aside faith. It's just the instinctual drives of our body for sex and power and control and, you know, and so often that's what's most authentic to us emotionally. And so we then just devolve to like this beastly state rather than maturing in Christ into people enjoying peace. So I I guess I'm double-minded and I think there's some kind of a tension there where you enforce at some level a rule of life and at the same time, just praying for God to bring their hearts to this place because we are what we repeatedly do. So if I just let my 14 year old do what was ever authentic to him, he would stay up till four in the morning every single day playing like 
Call of Duty or something. So, and that would ironically, and what parents want to believe is that he'd do that for a while and then he'd just stop. And maybe he would, but what happens to most people is the things we do repeatedly do something to us. He would be formed into the kind of person who wanted to do that more and wanted to follow Jesus less. So it's some kind of a mitigating effect. I think, you know, parents play a similar role to the government where our we, much of our job is preventative. It's on the negative side. It's about eliminating what, you know, cannot be done. And then agency has to come in on the positive side, what can be done. All that to say, where we've found the best success is with limited enforcement of private spiritual disciplines, like reading scripture in the morning before breakfast, um, which we kind of mandate and but really has been in the more communal disciplines specifically sabbath church and community around a table those those three disciplines which are communal and you know originally would have all been the same thing those are where we can bring our family so around it's eating eating a meal around a table once a week with a multi-generational multi-ethnic group of other followers of jesus that are family but not by blood that bringing our kids into that, making them a part of that community, we've had great success with. Just that's probably one of the highlights of our spiritual life. Sabbath, practicing Sabbath as a family, doing that with community, having a Sabbath community, Sabbath meals, Sabbath rituals, Sabbath celebrations, making it joyful and fun and full of good food and sugar and special treats. That we've had great success with. <laughs> And then just being a part of a healthy church, you know, and it's not an option whether our 17 year old wants to come to church and for all of his issues. And um, he he doesn't he, he comes joyfully. So those are some of those communal disciplines where it's easier to enforce and just say, this is what we are doing as a family. And we've just had some really good success with that. I just want to say, after all of that context, nuance, and careful wording, you still use the word mandate. That was that was really amazing. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so I have these great parents, and and they we I had a rule. You know, we had this rule growing up, and it was they called it the nub nub rule, which is so cheesy, like NBNB, and it was no Bible, no breakfast. So we weren't allowed to have breakfast until we had read our Bible. Dude, I had been reading through the Bible in a year since I was like seven. <laughs> I did the first year I ever didn't read cover to cover was uh, two years ago when I turned forty, and it's because I felt like the Spirit was, you know, leading me away from kind of reading at such a fast pace to more lectio divina and just spending. Uh, the same amount of time reading scripture every morning, but much smaller passages, more slowly and contemplatively. And I felt guilt for a whole year. I just felt like <laughs> I was sinning. You know, I was like, I should be on <laughs> Romans 13 by now. And so like, I don't know if what my parents did was good parenting, discipleship or spiritual abuse. All I know is that all I'm the oldest of four and all four of us wake up every morning and read scripture before we go about our day. So we've chosen to adopt that same role. But, you know, I can't enforce you know, like one of my kids seems to really genuinely have an un short but unhurried contemplative moment with God every morning. Mm -hmm. And he's wired more that way. And the other almost always forgets. And, and it's like, it's like, I read a Psalm and then, you know what I mean? And I, I don't know, I don't know how to handle that, but yeah, yeah. that's what we do. Mandate. This is maybe the moment where we say we've interviewed Phil and Diane before. They're here now, John Mark. So if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lead us through an intervention. Yeah. You know, no. No. But um, in all in all seriousness, they they have uh, they've been on uh, the Child Assumption podcast and, and have talked about the the no Bible, no breakfast and uh, 
you know, offer their framework on things. And, and it is, it is just as an outside observer, it is very joyful to see this kind of version 2.0 taking place in your family as you describe it based upon what you grew up in, if that yes. makes sense. Um, That's awesome. And I, my parents were first generation Christians, you know, so they were learning everything from scratch. And so we've yeah. been able to stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, and, and praise God for his grace that he gives even, even like newbies in the faith, right? Like that's, that's unbelievable. So I, I just wanted to, as a parent of a couple of teenagers myself and a couple of tweens who might as well be teenagers, um, yeah. praise God for that as well. Um, I, I'd love to just kind of enter into a part of discussion here, John Mark, where you, You've identified in um, Live No Lies, you've identified like as a part of the Christian life, we are going to have struggles, right? And, and we are going to face a, a type of conflict, a type of, uh, some would define it as, as warfare, if you will. So as we think about that, as it relates to our, our discipleship pathway, how, how then would you, maybe to fellow parents or to those we can stick in the parenting realm because I think, you know, whether or not you're, you're a children's ministry person, there are probably kids in your life who you, who you care about if you're listening to this. So how, how then with your own kids, John Mark, do you go about kind of with the knowledge of the fact that we have, you know, this, this enemy who, who is very real. We have a world full of distractions and temptations and all of this thing. How then, and even ourselves, right? The flesh that that wants to war against, you know, our our development of more Christ likeness. How do we walk with that in both kind of grace and truth, like you're talking about? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, I feel like I'm the last person that should be giving parenting advice. Nothing will humble you like parenting. And my children are wonderful, but I just don't feel like I should be on a podcast telling parents this or this is how you do it. But I can just say what we are doing is I, I think I would boil it down to three things. First would be like digital prevention. So we're mm -hmm. much more conservative than other parents around uh, digital devices because we think that they are portals to minds that are not yet ready to receive, uh, you know, thought patterns that in biblical language are lies, you know. So we are, you know, none of our kids had anything or are allowed to have anything till 16. And then they get a text only phone and no smartphone till 18. And social mm -hmm. media, we basically say our advice is never use it ever unless if you have to for work. And uh, and if you really are dead set on it, then you can do it the summer after you graduate. And we'll work with you before you leave home for your gap year to try to not let it destroy you. You know, I don't yeah. know if that's the right thing or the wrong thing. I know that's definitely a minority thing. Um, it gave me great freedom. We had these really great friends who were super secular. Um, we've, we've just sent I mean, there's all, there's, I'm sorry, they're still our friends. Uh, we've <laughs> since moved, but, and we had kids the same age and we had a great time together and they were wonderful people, but not, not even remotely Christian in their value system or whatever, but great parents. And uh, they were kind of very, kind of very well-educated kind of elites in the city and wealthy. And it gave me such pause when I realized they wouldn't let their kids have smartphones or social media till 18. Cause mm. I think, I think of it, that's like a fundamentalist Christian, you know, the world is evil thing. And I'm like, no, it's actually like most elites 
Most people with yeah. wealth and who are educated and thoughtful are actually really strict about that. So one thing for us would be, you know, the the strong on the preventative side of really strict measures around digital kind of stuff. Um, another thing for us would be, um, of course, prayer, you know, like just lots of intercessory prayer, which I think is a weak point for me. My wife is much stronger in it. I just reread Paul Miller's A Praying Life, and he has so many mm. stories of praying for his kids. And I was just like so deeply moved by it. I got my prayer cards here back out to, um, you know, fast and pray. Uh, so we fast, you know, particularly one of our kids that, you know, we worry the most about right now. We're just fasting one day a week, my wife and I, mm. interceding for him with specific things, you know, and praying for him. So, you know, preventative stuff, prayer stuff. And then third um, would be I don't have a I don't have a, an alliterating P, but a lot of con- and this would this would mix our again our family culture. So our family culture is I'm a reader. We live in these super secular, super progressive cities where we're tiny little minorities intellectually and theologically, and so there's lots of like it's not hyper intellectual, but there's lots of like conversation about life and culture and theology and stuff in our family. And just when we're driving around the table, I've been really influenced by the sociologist, Philip Reef, who said um, in his kind of, he said, the best way to critique secular culture is to biopsy it. And I've, I don't, he's so dense to read. I might not even misunderstand him, but this is, this is my interpretation <laughs> of that. And uh, dumbed down and simplified that I really like is if you think of a biopsy, like if the doctor is scared that I might have cancer, um, they will take a little scalpel and they won't get emotional. They won't get violent. They will be very, very gentle, very, very careful. They will come in and they will cut out a little piece of what they fear may be a cancer growing that if left unchecked will kill me. They will take it out non-emotionally, gently, carefully. They will put it under a microscope in a sanitary safe place where it won't infect others. And they will examine it very, very closely, see at the deepest, deepest level of that cell. And again, I'm not a science guy. I couldn't even explain it to you. Is this cancerous? Is this dangerous? Is it not? Where does it come from? Does it come from a healthy place? Is this part of the body's natural growth or from an unhealthy place? And then based on that biopsy, they will do what needs to be done for the body. So um, my interpretation of that is we are regularly biopsying the narratives of secular culture that are deforming our kids. Because in my kind of rubric in you know, my book, Live No Lies, I use this little line that the denim, you know, kind of the, the enemy's stratagem against us uh, and the three enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil and historic Christian thought is kind of deceptive ideas that play to disorders, desires that are normalized in a sinful society. So everything at some level starts with a deceptive idea. This is Genesis three, like the enemy comes at Eve, not with a stick or an AK 47, but with a lie, with a deceptive idea. Did God really say? So we're just constantly trying to identify what are those deceptive ideas in the narratives of our culture. So any chance we get to take a little a little snippet of a cultural narrative that is pos- that is possibly demonic lie, or I very much believe is a demonic lie, but I want my kids to discover that for themselves and biopsy it. So it could be, you know, leftist stuff like genders between the ears, not the legs, gender is a social construct. It could be stuff like that, little kind of aphorisms. Last night, I'm with my 17-year-old son. 
we're in LA to see one of our favorite bands, the 1975, which was his birthday present, you know, which, so this proves I'm definitely not a fundamentalist because I bought my kids tickets to the 1975. (laughs) (laughs) We're in line and, you know, the whole place just reeks of marijuana. We're talking about marijuana. We're talking about pot. And uh, the girl in front of us has this t-shirt on cool kind of LA girl and on the back of the t-shirt, it says, my greatest fear and my greatest hope is that it's all connected. Mm. And I was just like, so we, we just talked about that for 15 minutes. We talked about secularism and how it, you know, it has a meaningless universe, total accident, which means you can sleep with whatever, whoever or whatever the heck you want. You can do whatever you want as long as it's legal in the government you know, whatever be darn. But the crisis on the other side of that is it's a meaningless universe. There's there's no meaning to life. There's no connection. So people ache for a world that's connected, that has meaning and purpose and teleology. We're not an accident. We're the image of God. But that comes with moral responsibility, judgment, possibly intention. You're not your own, like uh, a, a good and true and beautiful that you have to align to. And so people like their greatest fear and their greatest hope is the same thing. And so here are all these people around us, thousands of people, you know, just living that secular life, sleeping with their girlfriends, smoking pot, doing whatever, living their life apart from God. But look around you and see the deep loneliness, you know, watching the 1975 incredible band and the lead singer is just so you know, so obviously incredibly depressed. He's just a miserable person and a savant genius. But, you know, it's just so obvious. This is not a radiant soul. This is a brilliant soul who's miserable. And so anyway, just we're constantly having those conversations, driving home. What do you think? And he said some fascinating things about the about masculinity in the concert that we were shocked by. So just great conversation, driving home at 1145 at night, you know, just talking about, this part of the show and that. So there's a lot of that in our family, a lot of kind of cultural biopsies, a lot of just, and they're not angry. They're not necessarily super emotional. Um, A lot of times we do it after movies or when we're driving or when we see bumper stickers or billboards or hear stuff from people and just trying to get the kids to think critically about the ideas that are constantly being implanted in their mind. That, that's something that any parent can do is have have those conversations. We talk about that a lot on this podcast. We have to have constant ongoing dialogue with our kids and asking them those open-handed questions like, if we go this direction, what do we think that consequence is going to be? Or what mm-hmm. do you see? What are you observing here? You know, I, it just hit me while you were talking, John, Mark. One, one advantage the three of us have over you as a parent is we can get our kids to listen to your podcast. It's probably really <laughs> challenging for you to do that. So, no, but if if they're at our church, they're forced to at least listen to my sermons. So, okay. you know. yeah, it's true. It's true. And well, that's okay, where I mean, so, you guys have brought in Carl Truman. You know, yeah. it's that's kind of there's a couple of like every parent should just read his stuff, even if you read his popular yeah, yeah. level one, not the thicker one. You know, you just you gotta you gotta read this stuff. You can't live yeah. in what the culture was 20 years ago because this is the stuff that will capture a kid's heart. And there's really good, you don't have to be a genius philosopher, you know, with a PhD, but you do need to do a little bit of work to understand where these ideas come from and where they're going, you know? And for parents who want the cheat sheet, if you go to childdiscipleship.com and you can get the 38 minute mini documentary we produce with Carl Truman, you can go check that out. So oh John Mark, gosh. when you were with oh, us- Oh, just pause there. I didn't know about this. That's amazing. We'll, we'll yeah. send, we'll send you, a you a copy, John Mark. I want it. <laughs> Yeah, it's beautifully done. So, John Mark, when you were with us in September, we talked about this idea of old maps and new maps. And so for yeah. some of our listeners, you kind of track with this a little bit. But 
So, you know, we've all seen these maps, you know, that were designed in a previous era, whether that was 70 years ago or 100 or even 500 years ago. So I came across this map from the 1500s commissioned by the Italians. It's, mm. it's you know, we, we might would use language like it's kind of crudely drawn compared to today's satellite images. So we, we would never, if we could bring those, that team back from the dead that commissioned and, and exercised this work, we would never, we would never shame them. We would actually thank them for their significant contribution. Um, but if we were to put that image side by side with Google Maps to see, you know, how it compares to reality, you know, we, we wouldn't shame that. We wouldn't say, you guys are idiots, look at how off you were. You know, we would definitely be grateful. Having said that, if our child educators and those who are responsible for child formation, spiritual formation, if we were still using old, outdated maps, you know, of, of old information, you know, shame on us, right? So we have more information about mental health, about biblical literacy, about child overall child development formation, uh, in, in children's ministry, what you might call edutainment, and so we mm. would kind of summarize, yeah. we'd kind of summarize the old map and the new map as being the old map is what you might call motivated by the major bustling city of the church growth model or tractionalism. And we would describe the new map, which is actually an ancient map. And we would describe it as using language like lasting faith, like the primary motivation of the new map is how can we help cultivate and form lasting faith in our children? Uh, so talk about how do you when you think about the old map new map what, what what are you seeing happening in the church is the church moving away from church growth or for what what if we stay in church growth <laughs> you know what 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 does the church really need to be doing in the the decade ahead i mean first off i just love that metaphor word picture symbol of old map new map i love it love it love it and and you know another layer about it i love is that a map is not reality. It's an attempt to portray reality. Yeah. And so your allegiance isn't to the map. It's to knowledge of reality. And so yeah. I think we need to have the humility to constantly be re-examining our maps and really trying to understand and know God's world and God's, you know, how God created the human soul and how created it to grow and thrive and what obstructs it, you know? So, um, as far as the church at large, you know, it's it's hard to know. It's hard to, I don't, you know, there are tens of thousands of churches and just in the United States of America, hundreds of thousands. Hard to know like what the church is doing. What I see across the board, I do not see yet people redrawing maps and re-architecting their churches or re-kind of charting their discipleship pathways and journeys in their churches to better align with the new maps. I see some people continuing down the same. Here's what I kind of see, um, but I, I don't think it's all bad. I see some people continuing down the same Sunday centric attractional church growth model and just updating it with, you know, the recent iteration of contemporary worship music or cool fashion or you know, cultural examples or whatever. And now with the internet, in particular, since COVID, it's kind of a winner takes all. So the same dynamic, you know, in a pre-digital thing where if a really gifted pastor and church planner came into town in a church growth model, basically all the smaller, not as good, not as well done church service churches would kind of all shrink 
and that one would grow. And most of that growth was church transfer. Very little of it was kind of new converts, so to speak. Some of it was, but not a lot. And now it's like with the internet, it's that dynamic <laughs> at infinitum because it's no longer based on how far you can get with a, your car on a Sunday morning. It's based on, you know, one click on your web browser. So I think, you know, there will continue to be winners in that game. Again, that sounds more cynical than I am, but I just, I struggle to become passionate about that model of church. You know, I think for many of those people, it'd be really much better if they just did an awesome podcast and like bless the world with their teaching or their whatever, rather than trying to grow their church that way. Because you're just, I, I think at some point, you know, you lose the beauty of church is it's not scalable. Scalability is a baby boomer capitalistic value. And yeah. it applies very well if you're trying to grow Starbucks or Chipotle and you're trying to make a lot of money and have quality control. But if you're trying to grow human souls and community, I, I think the beauty of church is that it's not scalable. You know, I mean, Dunbar basically argued that sociologists that once you get past 150, there is a categorical shift in the church from community to crowd. And mm. I don't think that means that large churches are bad. I've led one, but I'll tell you, I, I think I'm more excited about how small a church is rather than how big one is, you know? So all that to say, I think there are, there's one stream of kind of winner take all churches that continuing down that path, but that's a minority. What the majority I think of churches are experiencing is they're doing the same formula, Sunday centric, attractional, whatever, but it's harder than it's ever been. It's less cool than it's ever been. And it's the law of diminishing returns. And so it's like, they're putting more work in, yep. It's less exciting and it feels less effective. And I think every year that is good. That could have just been a COVID thing. I don't think so. I think every year as, as culture continues to secularize now on the right, not just the left, I think it's going to be more and more of that dynamic where it's like, I'm working harder. The church got a little smaller and this is just feels boring. It's like not cool anymore. It's not innovative because we're doing rock bands or whatever. Yeah. So I think amongst that larger stream of the church, I think there is a growing openness, hunger, and desire for new models of discipleship, but I don't think there's enough widespread uh, good information out on the new models yet to see some massive shift in thousands of churches toward new models of discipleship. You know, we're only as good as our models and we're limited by our models. You know, we're limited by our, our horizon of possibility. So for years, I would read the New Testament and I remember sitting through seminary and, you know, the old, like in the nineties, the kind of cessationist versus charismatic interpretation of the Bible. I remember realizing that just at a pure analytical biblical level, the cessationist does not, that, that, that interpretation does not hold water. I remember reading the new Testament reading and just thinking there's no way that healing and deliverance and the prophetic is not for today, but I had no models beyond Pentecostalism, which is a beautiful tradition. I have no desire to critique it but was just so far outside of my personhood, my cultural context, and, and had a couple of theological hangups with it. So I had no model for how to live into this stuff I was reading about in the New Testament, because I only had like a, a very, very emotional kind of model that was a very different church culture than I felt like I could move into, or the like, we exegete the Bible and sing two songs and then do the thing we're done. I had no model. So until I had models, which came into my life later, then I could begin to live into this stuff that I desired and that was in me. So I think with discipleship, 
what, and this is what practicing the way is trying to do. It's what you guys are trying to do is we're trying to discover and then make available new models of discipleship. So, it, you know, it's not enough to say the way we're doing church isn't working good. Sure. We have to be able to come up with something that's as good or better and say, here's an alternative way. And I really learned that through like the missional movement, living through that as a pastor, realizing mm. it was really, it was really specific in its critique of the attractional church and really vague in its proposed solutions. And so what it ended up doing was actually blowing up a lot of churches and not creating anything better. So I don't want to do that, but just on the discipleship side. In fact, much of my movement of discipleship comes out of the pain of living through the missional movement and realizing it was cart before the horse. It didn't have a high enough value for formation. The world was so much stronger. If you send unformed people out into the world, they're more likely to be corrupted by the world than they are to influence it. Yeah. So much of my kind of foray into discipleship comes with what I experienced as the pain of the, of the, the shadow side of the missional movement. So um, it's a very long way of saying, I, I want to not just be, it's easy to critique what is. It's so easy. I mean, gosh, we could just start slamming the traditional American church. It's so easy. It's incredibly hard to build communities of Jesus made out of real people, real problems, real issues, real stresses, real iPhones, real family wounds, into better models of discipleship in the community that can not just withstand, but thrive the secular apocalypse and whatever comes next in Western culture. And that's what we need par parents in their little tiny micro communities, churches of their homes and pastors. And like, that's what we need to give ourselves to R and D to dreaming and exploring what are the communities of the future, which I think are really going to be ancient communities brought back to life. I'm, I'm a firm believer that the future is ancient. The future of discipleship is not like cooler websites and more TikTok videos. It's like <laughs> a return to ancient Christian apostolic Christianity, ancient models of church, which is just what we would consider radical discipleship, which I think Jesus and the early Christians would just call discipleship. Yeah. John Mark, as, as you kind of set forward that, that, point of view and as you kind of take this this overall survey if you will of, of the american church although none of us to your point can can say completely this is what the american church is doing because there's so many facets and nuances yeah that's just antidotal it's kind of what i see from my vantage yeah. point so continuing on that line of anecdotes uh what what then fills you though with hope all of us are in some regard forming faith in kids that we hope will withstand the test of time and culture and the pressures thereof. But as you're, as you're a father and as, as you've, you know, as you're leading practicing the way, and as we're leading at Awana and we're, as we're all trying to influence the church to be better disciple makers, if we can quantify that, you know, what, what is actually to end this kind of on a, on a positive note here, what, what's filling you with hope? What's, what in that regard is, is, you know, getting you up in the morning beside the sun in uh, Southern California, which is fantastic, you know, advantage <laughs> you. but, uh, but what, what's filling you with hope then for the church that this is still, this is still something that wins, if you will. Yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, I, I live in this, this tiny sliver that is rapidly growing of culture that is just, you know, spending the last 20 years in Portland, Oregon, and before that in the Bay Area, 
of this very secular, very progressive or liberal stream of, of America. It's not all of America. It's not all of what America will become, but it's a rapidly increasing demographic and social aspect of what will become. And one of the things to me that is, is so sad is to see the, uh, the aftermath of secularism. Like when you live in a secular, like the best case against progressivism is progressive cities. So yeah. it kind of looks cool if you live in Nashville or you're in Atlanta, but if you go hang out in LA or Portland or these super progressive cities, it looks cool and it looks horribly depressed and miserable at the same time. So like the sheen is off, the glimmer is off because it's real. And now we're, you know, the mental health crisis, we're living through all of it. So there's a sadness to it, like a grief, but there's also a joy in that. I don't know if I can say this on a podcast, almost all of the best churches I know are in really hard, really secular, really liberal contexts. Mm -hmm. Almost any church, if I just was like, I want to be a part of this church, and I love what they're doing, I love what they're saying, I love how the community is, almost all of them are in incredibly secular places. Mm -hmm. And the, the so there's this catch-22 where it's the burn-off of cultural Christianity is really sad because you know, seeing an entire city or society attempting to live apart from God and then reaping the consequences of living apart from God is really sad. The the beautiful light side to that is it tends to breed incredibly healthy churches because, yeah. you know, contrary to what progressives want to argue that you have to update the church for modern cultural narratives, it actually kills the church when you do that. And actually churches thrive when they have to be a counterculture, you know? So that gives me great hope that in these incredibly secular cities, whether it's London or San Francisco or LA or Portland or Boston or Melbourne, there are just these thriving churches that are like some of the most beautiful communities I see. And mm. the other thing that gives me hope is we're finally at this spot where the honeymoon stage and the glory has faded from both the attractional church on the Christian side and from secularism on the other side. And that is a beautiful moment. So like I lived through the nineties and in the nineties and the early two thousands, it was kind of this like glory days of secularism. It was kind of like the Bill Clinton era. It was like, you know, we've thrown off kind of all these old models of you got to, you know, only sleep with your wife or husband or whatever, and you got to be married and you got to do these things. You got to go to church. We've gotten rid of all that. And look at like movies or all these movies where people are just kind of walking around in brown underwear, having sex with people. And it's so cute. And Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are actually having an affair, but it's this beautiful rom-com. And it's like, there's kind of this like really fun, like just kind of fun, lighthearted secularism. That's kind of like, we can just do whatever we want and have fun and get along. And there's all this talk about, you know, the end of war and Christians were all worried about one world government and how the government, you know, which is clearly not happening. And, yeah. you know, all of these things. And now secularism is so dark. I mean, if you look at the way even sexuality is portrayed in film, it's nihilistic and beast-like and depressive and meaningless. Like the death of the rom-com. Rom-coms basically are no longer being made. You would never seen a CAU Got Mail kind of remade in our age because there's such cynicism and depression around romance and sexuality in the Tinder age. So the, and now we have the political thing ripping our nation apart. Now you're seeing secularism, not just on the left, but on the right. And you're seeing a society that can't even agree on the facts of what actually happened. And you're seeing radical polarization and mm -hmm. violence and riots and anarchy and storming the Capitol. Like 
the glory days are over. Now you're actually seeing this is the kind of society that secularism creates on both the left and the right. And the same is happening in the church where the glory days of the church growth movement, which are really recent historically, of course, there's always been large churches like Spurgeon in London, but the proliferation of large churches based on the combination of American business principles and American entertainment principles, that goes back at the earliest to the, not even the seventies, really the eighties. I mean, I grew up at a mega church and I was shocked when I read a stat that said in the 1970s, there were only 10 churches over 2000 people in the entire continental United States. Now, if that stat's even close to true, I mean, it blow, it just, it's shocking. So this, you know, kind of large church growth, Sunday centric entertainment based model is so new historically and the glory of, I lived through the glory of, I planted a church, we grew by a thousand people a year for seven years straight. Like I remember living through that glory and, you know, that or that sense of like momentum and excitement and energy in the room and what mega church people call momentum. All of that glory in a post-COVID, post-President Trump, post-political polarization, mm-hmm. that, that glory is gone yeah. with a few rare, rare, rare exceptions. And this could be one of the most beautiful moments. And as people are disenfranchised with both the church models of discipleship and community as they are, and with secularism, the real question is, will something better emerge from the ashes? And there is no guarantee that because the church model is failing and secularism is failing, something better will take its place. Like there, historically, there is no guarantee. It could just devolve, devolve, devolve into misery. So, this is why the task set before us as Christians and as leaders in particular of churches is absolutely, I mean, this is like, we, we live one of the most important times in hundreds of years to be a Christian because we have to find new models of discipleship, community, ways of following Jesus together in our cities and places that can emerge from this these ashes of this and offer a possible path forward. And, and that's the work that I, I just want to give my life to. Child Discipleship Podcast is powered by Awana. Thanks to the donations of generous folks like you, Awana partners with 62,000 churches in 130 countries to make resilient disciples. When you give to Awana, you are investing in lasting faith. Young people who will engage the culture with the gospel and fearlessly lead the church into the future. To make a donation to this mission, go to awana.org donate. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and check out the show notes of today's episode for relevant links from this conversation, as well as information about other podcasts from Awana. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.